your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, and this evening we do begin the third chapter, and this is where we reach the theological and the doctrinal section in the book of Galatians. Now, occasionally, when you're reading the Bible, you'll come to a place where a chapter division doesn't make very much sense. You'll be studying something, and all of a sudden, in the middle of something you're studying, there is a division there. It's chapter 2, chapter 3, or 4, 5, and so on. And I mentioned on several occasions that Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 13th century, is the one who gave us the chapter divisions that we have in the Bible. And... Um, For the most part, he did a very good job in dividing it. And and in fact, the divisions that he made are consistent all the way through through all versions of Scripture. I mean, every Bible that you pick up has the same place where the chapters are divided. And occasionally, you'll come across a place where a chapter division doesn't really make very much sense. But as we look at this Scripture uh, in the third chapter... Here's where we find a a good chapter division because there's a very uh, marked difference in the approach of Paul to his subject uh, as we enter into the third chapter. Uh, He's talking here about the doctrine of justification and he gets in now to more the doctrinal and the theological aspects of that doctrine. As we've learned thus far, the reason that Paul wrote the book of Galatians was because of a doctrinal error that had been introduced into the Galatians churches by those that are known as the Judaizers. And these were people that wanted Gentile Christians to be brought back under the old Mosaic law, and most specifically the law of circumcision. So they had introduced circumcision as part of the way that a person could be justified with God. And Paul saw that as a serious affront to the gospel. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of justification by faith alone. And that is the core central doctrine of Christianity, as I've mentioned so many times before. And justification by faith alone is based upon the finished work of Christ alone upon the cross of Calvary. So it is a gospel of grace that we believe, a gospel received by grace through faith alone. And any merits on the part of the sinner that are added to that will actually destroy grace. Now, it also destroys the church because what is the church but people who are saved, justified sinners? And if you take the gospel of Christ and you pervert it and make it something that it's not, then eventually you are going to destroy the church. So Galatians was written to confront this error. But before Paul could give us the theological argument that we have here in this third chapter, there is a problem that he has to address, and that is the authority of his apostleship. Why is Paul to be believed on this subject? The Judaizers came to the churches of Galatia, and they claimed to be Christians, and Paul claimed to be a Christian. Why do we believe Paul instead of them? And so Paul has to take the first two chapters of this letter to approach that part of it, to give a defense of his apostleship, because what he says here is paramount to the truth. And understanding that he is an apostle who's received information directly from God is extremely important here so that we know who to believe. Now, I hope, and I know I I should say, that we don't have to be reminded that the apostles are the foundation of the church. 
It begins with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He, as we're going to study beginning uh, this Sunday, I believe it is, that Jesus Christ is the rock upon which the church is built. But then the apostles are also a part of that foundation. And those original 12 apostles that Christ chose and trained himself are unlike any other people that the world has ever seen. They're the only ones that were ever chosen in this way. And that's an argument, it seems, against the Apostle Paul. And so this is why he has to defend himself. Uh, That argument was used against him. And so he has to let us know that he received his direct calling from God at a different time from the rest of the apostles. Now, we've been through all of that. We've, we've given all the proofs that uh, Paul talked about. And the first two chapters are all about that, and we don't need to repeat that now. But the defense of apostleship, that's what the first two chapters concern. And now, as we get into the third chapter, we're going to see how Paul defends the doctrine of justification by faith alone and shows that it is, in fact, the correct theological position. So we look at chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. And Paul writes here, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently, hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain? If it yet be in vain, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth it he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Now before we get started into this part of the study, let me just say that the very last thing that anybody would want to do is to challenge the Apostle Paul to debate. I would call that intellectual suicide. Because there's nobody that is so methodical and so logical in his approach to doctrine as the Apostle Paul. And this section is no different because as we go through this, we're, we're going to get in some difficult things a little bit later on. And some things you're going to have to pay very close attention to in order to understand. But here Paul is going to use those logical arguments and he will appeal to reason. He'll appeal to experience and he'll appeal to the, appeal to the scriptures to show that he's teaching the correct doctrine. Now, when we studied 1 John, I emphasized that there is a difference in the approach of John to his subject uh, that's different from the Apostle Paul. With John, you remember you have all these winding, twisting, intertwined arguments, and you have to unravel all of that to get at what John is saying. Peter made a comment about Paul and you probably remember this, that he said that some of the things that Paul said are very difficult to understand. But the difficulty doesn't lie in Paul's approach to his subject. He's not like John. His difficulty is in the approach, but Paul's difficulty is in the depth of the doctrine that he speaks of. Now, if we look at Galatians and at Romans, we see a very logical approach to the Scripture start to unfold And the skill of Paul in debate is simply unparalleled. It's just really a beautiful thing to behold. Now, in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, 
Uh, Paul appeals to the experience of the Galatians in their conversion. And then beginning with verse number 6 and then carrying on through to chapter 4 and verse number 7, his argument is going to be about Scripture itself. What does the Bible have to say? What is the history behind justification by faith? Now we notice how he begins verse number 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Our attention is drawn right away to this unusual method that Paul has of addressing the church. When we studied the first chapter, we noted how that Paul begins the letter in an uncustomary way. Usually what he'll do is he'll greet the people of the church and he'll say something very endearing about them. But Paul doesn't do that here. Uh, He doesn't have a warm greeting for the church as he begins the book of Galatians. In fact, when we come to this third chapter, this is the first time uh, in the book that Paul addresses the Galatians in a direct manner. And when he talks to them directly, he does not call them his brethren, but rather he uses the word Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Martin Luther said that the reason that Paul addressed the church this way was to remind them of this propensity that they had to be foolish in regards to doctrine. And in the beginning of the series, uh, we learned that the Galatians were a kind of people that were uh, especially persuaded to follow anything that was new. If you come up with a new doctrine, these are people that just had this national trait about them that they would pursue those kinds of things without really checking it out to go into the depths of it to see where that doctrine would lead them. Well, John Gill says that Luther's reasoning is wrong on this, that the reason that Paul calls them or, uh, foolish is because of their stupidity in understanding the doctrine of justification. And I don't know if that distinction is all that important. I think the word foolish is the word that we need to concentrate on. That's the real main problem. It's not the word Galatians, but rather the word foolish that Paul uses here. What does he mean by foolish? Well, it actually is a word that means idiotic. But it doesn't refer to just a dull stupidity. As we would put it, It refers to somebody who's not using the full faculties of their brain. Somebody who's just using half of their brain to try to figure out what they're looking at. Or they're not using their full mental capacity to think through all of the issues before they decide what to believe. Unless we be too quick to criticize the Galatians for not thinking this through and only using half their brains... Well, if we think about it, we'll discover that much of the error that we see in doctrine today is because people do not think things through. They don't take a doctrine and examine it and think all the way to see what will be the outcome of this doctrine. And what many times people do is they base their opinions upon some subjective feeling that they have rather than the objective word of God. Now, let me give you an example of that. In, in our understanding of the doctrines of grace, we see it that universal atonement is a sure recipe for universal salvation. And we can't see how universal atonement could lead to any other conclusion. That if the death of Christ on the cross was truly substitutionary, then universal atonement could not result in anything other than universal salvation. And that means that every person in the world will be saved if the atonement is universal. 
And yet we know that the Bible does not teach universal salvation. In fact, no matter which side of this argument that you come down on, true Christians of all stripes do not agree that they do not agree that there is a universal salvation. But at the same time, there are many of them that do believe that there is a universal atonement. Now, we just wonder, why don't you think things through? Why don't you see where that belief will lead you, and it leads you to a logical conclusion if there is a substitutionary atonement that everybody's going to be saved? And then another huge group that really doesn't think things through uh, are people that are in the charismatic movement. Instead of the objective truths of Scripture, they base their beliefs on emotional experiences. The truth of God's Word is found out by studying the Scripture, but instead these are people that become victims of their feelings. If the doctrine feels good, if it excites the senses, then they go along with it. But what if they just thought things through? What if they took something like this, if they, if they tested the, doctrine, uh, the doctrines that they hear, what would happen if they started looking at the objective facts of the track record of their faith healers? What if they were to say, well, why don't you give me a doctor's report of that person that you're going to heal, and then let them heal them, and then say, now give me a doctor's report afterwards, and let's, let's examine that. Why can't they at least do that much? But they don't do that. Uh, that's, that seems to be too simple for some reason, and they just don't ask the right questions. They don't follow it through. Now, here's the way that we look at this. We never ask anybody to believe anything that we say without first checking the Scriptures. And we encourage people to ha that have questions, sit down, talk with us, let's discuss it. We have a statement of faith that is a summary of what we believe. And if you'll look at that statement of faith, and I hope you have, you'll find that there is a list of scriptures, a huge list of scriptures there that support every doctrine that we teach. So what we do is we ask people to think things through. Now, here's the thing about the Galatians. Do you remember that Paul said in chapter 1, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He found it just simply incredulous that they didn't stop to think about this. And it's not as if they don't have the ability to know the truth. Here they're guilty of desertion from the truth, but it's not because that they can't know it. It's not because they're stupid. Now, if they were lost, then we'd, we would understand this. We would say, well, of course, they're led away and they're pushed away by false doctrines. They're led all over the place by every wind of doctrine because they don't have the ability to understand it. Lost people don't have the ability to understand things in the spiritual realm. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They don't have any ability to reason. So this would make sense if Paul's talking about lost people. But if he's talking about lost people, then he wouldn't make the arguments that he makes in the way that he does. He knows better than this. And so in the beginning, he writes to them as true believers, but believers that have been mixed up, believers that have been led astray. And the simple truth of the matter is they don't have to be. They don't need to be led astray. They have the ability through the Holy Spirit to understand the truth. But that truth is not going to come until they apply themselves to it until they look into the word of God until they study this out and use their heads to think it through so he calls them foolish because they only use half their brains and like idiots they were victimized by the lies of false teachers 
And that's the way it is for all Christians who hear the truth and then turn from it. Truth is discoverable to all Christians. We have the ability to know the truth, but what God does not do, he does not screw off the top of our head and pour the truth into it. We have to apply ourselves diligently to learn truth. This is what Paul said to Timothy. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, be diligent about this. Be diligent about truth. Apply yourself so that you may interpret the word of God correctly. And so Paul approaches them this way. He says, what are you thinking? Are you idiots? And that sounds a little bit harsh. And... That seems to be the tone as we read the first two chapters of the book of Galatians and we get into this part that Paul seems to be harsh in his treatment towards these people. When you get into the fifth chapter, by the time you get to the end of that, you'll find out that Paul tones down the rhetoric quite a bit and the tone changes somewhat. But here, in this particular place, he is hot on the trail of this error because this is a very serious problem, a very serious affront to the gospel of Christ. Now, you see, you haven't got to your outline yet. And, uh, and I hope you're already making some notes uh, because I'm going to take a little bit of time here to look at another word. We looked at the word foolish. Now, let's look at another one that Paul uses here. The next word is the word bewitched. He said, who has bewitched you? Now, Paul asked the question in this way, who has cast a spell on you? I mean, it, it's almost as if there's some kind of sorcery that's involved in this. Well, he said, who has bewitched you? And that's a rhetorical question. Doesn't require an answer. He knows the answer to this because, remember, he gave that whole interlude in chapter 2 about what took place in the conference at Jerusalem. He spoke of those who came with a different gospel in chapter 1. He knows very well who bewitched them. They were bewitched by the Judaizers. And those were none other than emissaries of Satan. And what they did was just like Satan does, he transforms himself into an angel of light. A false teacher never comes and announces himself. He doesn't say, hey, I'm from Satan, and I want you to believe these doctrines of my Lord and Master, the Prince of Darkness. Satan doesn't come to people that way. He comes as an angel of light, and he comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing and leads dumb sheep astray. Now, maybe that's why God decided to use the term sheep for his people, because sheep can be pretty dumb. They can be easily led astray. Now, here's an important point to consider, though. Paul said, who has bewitched you? Now, the Judaizers are a group. They're they're a group of people. There's more than one of them. But Paul uses a word here that's actually singular. Who has bewitched you? And he really hit the nail on the head here because he knows the one who's behind this activity. There is a singular entity that is behind all of this, and his name is Satan. According to Jesus, he's the father of all lies. God is the father of all truth, and Satan is the father of all lies. And as I've said before, and I'll state it now again, there are only two sources in the world, only two spirits that operate in the world. Either we're talking about things that come from Satan, or these are things that come from God. There aren't any other sources. Truth comes from God, lies come from Satan. 
And what we ought never to do is underestimate the power of Satan because what he can do, his influence is strong enough that he can remove very clear evidences of truth and put a lie in its place. And that's what we see in the next part of this statement. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently And you might want to underline that word, evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now you can get ready to start the outline. We're going to give you just, I'm just going to give you point number one tonight. And since Paul is asking questions in this portion of scripture, we're going to rephrase this just a little bit and also ask questions. So the outline tonight and next week is going to be questions. And this first question is, what happened to you at the cross? And that's going to be the first point of Paul's theology of justification. What happened to you at the cross? Now you see, he's taking here the experiential approach to their salvation. Something had happened to them. Paul witnessed it and they knew it. Paul had no doubt that they were saved. They were mixed up. They haven't thought things through. So what he is about to do here in this next section is help them think things through. What happened to you at the cross? Now, I'm going to let you know up front that what Paul will do here is he will bring into the picture, into the discussion, all three parts of the Trinity. He's going to bring all of the persons of the Trinity into this because each of them has a very definite part to play in our salvation. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, all of them have an integral parts to play in the way that we're saved. Now, here's the thing about it, though. At first, we don't understand what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit works beneath the consciousness of a person in order to bring him to a realization of truth. We don't understand that. We don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing. We don't know that the Holy Spirit is already working within the eternal plan of God the Father to bring us to salvation. And we don't concern ourselves with that at first. We don't go out necessarily preaching those things at first. The very first thing that you hear, what is that first thing that you hear about when you hear the gospel? You hear about Jesus, don't you? The very first thing that you hear is the focus of the the work of Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. Now, Paul refers to the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and defines it for us there where he says that it's the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so the very first place that we're pointed to with the gospel is to the cross. And that's always the method of the apostles. A few weeks ago, I was preaching the sermon, preaching Peter's preaching points. And the very first place that he went when he preached to the Jews was he said to them, and and he just hit it head on, God glorified Jesus, whom you delivered up, and you killed the prince of life. And where did they kill him? They killed him at the cross. You know, we sing that song, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. The cross is the first place you go. It is the first place that you hear anything about salvation. Now, Paul preached the cross. He said in 1 Corinthians, uh, second chapter, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
So Paul made his first appeal to the senses of the Galatians by taking them back to the cross. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, listen, crucified among you? Now how does Paul take them back to the cross? Had they ever been to the cross? Were they there when the Lord was crucified? Were they standing there in person when Jesus was crucified? How is he going to take them to the cross? Well, he does it in the same way that you and I go to the cross today. He's talking here about preaching. The preaching of the cross. And he was the very first one to preach the cross to them. Now now notice the wording here. And I'm going to paraphrase it just a little. The truth of what Jesus did at the cross was plainly set before your eyes. Now, he says evidently set forth. He means it was plainly set before your eyes. And this is a very interesting reference that he gives here. You see, in the days of the Apostle Paul, they didn't have newspapers. I think that you know that. They didn't have smartphones in order to look things up on in church, which, you know, having a smartphone in church in many times is a dumb thing to do. Uh, The phone's smarter than a lot of Christians. Now, here's what I, I will concede And I'll concede this point to you, that maybe it's all right to read the Bible on the phone. I may concede that to you, but I know what else is on the phone. I know about all the other apps. And Satan is just good enough to steal away a person's attention on their cell phone with all the other apps and all the other information that you can get. The devil knows how to steal the word away. So really, a cell phone, a smartphone in church is like having a comic book inside of the Bible. It looks good on the outside, but it doesn't tell you what's going on on the inside. So anyway, let that be as it may. Uh, they, They didn't have instant news in the time of the Apostle Paul. And so when news had to get around, they put it on a piece of parchment in a prominent place in the city. Like when Paul went to preach in Athens and he went to the Agora. That's the marketplace. That would be a place where they would put up a piece of parchment in order to get the news out about something. And this is actually what Paul means here with this phrase when he says evidently set forth. And it means like this. It's like the story of the cross was placarded. That it was put up on a pole and a sign was there pointing to Jesus Christ. It was like it was posted before their eyes. Now, what Paul's trying to tell them in the beginning is this. Have you forgotten the cross? Have you kept looking at the cross? What happened to you there? What makes you think that you could be saved by anything other than the cross? And really, this is the point of their backsliding. They didn't remember what Jesus had accomplished for them at the cross. Now, there are others that have have pointed out that when the cross ceases to be the attraction in the church, that the church is doomed. And I don't mean that we have to have a crucifix in the church, something to put before the naked eye so that we can look at it and be reminded in that way. But rather what we must have is a very vivid picture in our minds of what happened at the cross. What happened to our sins at the cross? A picture in our mind of the suffering of the cross. A picture there of the innocent dying for the guilty. And a picture of the sin bearing that took place at the cross. That always has to be on our minds. We have to keep that in front of us. And yet with all the busyness that we have of our Christian activities today, this is the thing that we forget. We forget about the cross. A few years ago, there was this movement to take the 
uh, take all the references in, in, in our sacred hymns, take all the references to the blood out of the hymn books. And you know why they want to do that? The blood was too barbaric. People don't want that kind of imagery in their mind. It's too bloody. The cross is too offensive. And so they take it out and they put a bloodless Christianity in its place. But when you take your eyes off the cross and what happened there, then you take Christ out of Christianity. Now, Paul didn't want to take the cross away. And that's why he said, I don't want to know anything else about what you're doing until, until I find out how the cross has affected you. Now, you think for just a moment, what, what really must it have been like to hear the Apostle Paul preach, especially when he's preaching about the cross? That must have been something. I mean, um, how, did, how did he do that? I mean, he must have developed a way of presenting the cross so that people really felt like they were right there, like, like they were standing right on the ground in front of the cross and watching the crucifixion take place. He must have presented in such a way that he could overcome all of the objections that they had about the cross. You see, the cross is a place for criminals. And the imagery of a, of a criminal dying on a cross, that was loathsome to these people. And we lose that or we don't recognize that because the cross is not our form of execution. But Paul had to preach the cross whether it's loathsome or not. Whether they like the imagery of the cross or not, Paul has to preach that because that is the point of Christianity. You can't have Christ without his cross. And so it's necessary to preach that. You see, the preaching of the cross has to do two things. It has to present the historical account accurately, and it also has to tell us the value of what took place for the, loss, for the uh, souls and the sins of lost people in this world. We have to know the value of it. We have to know the historical record of it. Now, I like the way that the expositor's commentary uh, phrases this when they talk about Paul's preaching of the cross. And it's just a, just a beautiful reference. Uh, this is what they say. This forgetfulness of the cross on the part of the Galatians is the more astonishing to Paul because at first they had so vividly realized its power and the scene of Calvary, as Paul depicted it, had taken hold of their nature with extraordinary force. He was conscious at the time, so his words seemed to intimate, that it was given him amongst this susceptible people to draw the picture with unwanted effect. The gaze of his hearers was riveted upon the sight. It was as if the Lord Jesus hung there before their eyes. They beheld the divine sufferer. They heard his cries of distress and of triumph. They felt the load which crushed him. Nor was it their sympathies alone and their reverence to which the spectacle appealed. It stirred their conscience to its depths. It awakened feelings of inward humiliation and contrition of horror at the curse of sin, of anguish under the bitterness and blackness of its death. It was you, Paul would say, you and I for whom he died. Our sins laid on him that ignominy, those agonies of body and of spirit. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. They looked, they listened, till their hearts were broken, till all of their sins cried out against them. And in a passion of repentance, they cast themselves before the crucified and took him for their Christ and King. From the foot of the cross, they rose new men with heaven's light upon their brow with the cry, Abba, Father, 
rising from their lips. With the Spirit of God and of Jesus Christ, the consciousness of a divine sonship filling their breast. That's just a magnificent way of describing that, how Paul must have preached when he spoke about the cross. So Paul's question is, have you forgotten about it? Do you remember what happened to you when you bowed at the foot of the cross? Can you forget what you experienced there? You know, sometimes I wonder what preachers are doing. I was reading a pamphlet that I received from a ministry in Oregon the other day, and I was noticing the speakers that they had for their conferences and how they described them. And I saw these kinds of things, and this is a quote. This person has a unique, fresh, dynamic approach to teaching the scriptures. Another one said, this one knows how to engage you with humor and make the Bible really interesting. And the advertisements about preachers usually run that way. The emphasis is on the speaker. It's on the dynamic abilities of a speaker. And I, and I wonder what has happened in the 2,000 years of Christianity that proves to us that the preaching prior to this time was so poor. What's happened? What's happened to preachers like Jonathan Edwards that did nothing but read a sermon in a monotone and there were thousands of people that were saved? You want to know the answer to that question? Read what he was reading. Read one of his sermons. Read the depth of what he had to say. Read about the preaching of the cross and read how he expected the way that God would make the word effectual in a person's heart. You didn't see any billboards for the dynamic preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was the content. It was what he had to say. And God takes the spoken word, the word preached from the Bible, not the abilities of the speaker, and makes it effectual in the heart of the hearer. But what do we hear today? What's on the placard? The preacher and not Christ. Who gets advertised? Look at the billboards. Look at... The papers that are put out, who gets advertised? The preachers get advertised. I get papers all the time. Uh, you know, they tell me about all the speakers that are going to be at the conferences, and they're going to list all the qualifications for the speakers at the conferences. And you know what gets missed in all of this? Who's holding up Christ? Who's announcing to come and hear about Christ rather than come and hear this preacher? Alexander McLaren said, Ah, if we ministers universally acted up to the implications of this metaphor, and there he's speaking of the metaphor of Christ on a placard, he says, do you not think the pulpit would be more frequently a center of power than it is today? And if instead of presenting our own ingenuities and speculations, we were to realize the fact that we have to hide ourselves behind the broad sheet that we fasten up, there would be a new breath over many a moribund church and we should hear less of the often warrantable sarcasms about the inefficiency of the modern pulpit. You know the fascinating thing about that statement? It was written over a hundred years ago. What do you think has happened in the time since? What do we see today? What about the modern pulpit today? And then to follow up this other point about the value of the cross... Uh, to do that, we have to see where the emphasis is placed. In the original language, the word crucified is accented. It's emphasized. The passage lays stress on this word 
crucified. So it's Paul's intention not to stress that he preached Jesus alone as the Savior, but that he preached Jesus as the Savior who was crucified. The argument here is for justification by faith alone, and the intent here is to stress that the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross are atoning sufferings, that you don't need anything else but this, that Christ's sacrifice alone is sufficient to pay for our sins and to bring us salvation. Now, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is what Paul meant when he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so if any preacher takes the focus away from the cross, he's not preaching by the apostolic example. You know, there's a lot said today about preachers preaching practical things. In fact, that's another part of the big advertisements that you see for preachers today. They talk about how that preachers are so practical in their preaching because they speak on things that are relative to everybody's everyday life. And so preaching is about marriage issues and family issues and divorce issues and work issues and money issues. And all of those things have a place, of course. They're practical. But there is nothing that is more practical to any person, to anyone's life, than the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet that is the thing that's missing from the modern pulpit. Go to church somewhere and here do they preach Jesus Christ crucified. And I'm afraid you can listen to Joel Osteen for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And you'll never hear something about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not Jesus Christ lifted up, dying for the sins of people who are on their way to hell. You'll listen to him from now on and you'll never hear him make statements like that. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, this has been placarded before you. How can you not remember that? How can you not think about what happened to you at the cross? So he says, have you forgotten all of that? And his encouragement to them is to think. Think it through. What happened to you when you went to the cross? Do you see what Jesus did? Do you know what's accomplished there? And the point here is that if you can satisfy God for sin, then Christ never needed to go to the cross. And I suppose, folks, that that is the real issue in the modern church today. They don't need the cross. Because whatever they're doing, they can do all by themselves. Why do you need to preach the cross if you can do it yourself? And that's the point that Paul's trying to make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight and uh, the preaching of the cross, how, how important that that is. Jesus Christ and him crucified, how can we ever forget to talk about what Jesus did there? Our salvation is dependent upon it. And Lord, we know this, as the Apostle Paul was so eloquently proved to us as he goes through this third chapter, that Jesus Christ accomplished everything for us, that there's nothing left for us to do, that the law can have, keeping the laws, keeping commandments, can't have anything to do with our salvation because Jesus did it all for us. Lord, we we just thank you for these great scriptures that we have here. Help us to understand it in a better way. And remember what happened at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, please.